Um, hello, welcome back. If you, if you want to go get seconds, help yourself. Just go and grab some food. Um, this part of the conversation is... Uh, I was talking to a couple of people uh, and Louise was saying, oh, we're just listening at the moment. We're listening, going, What's, what does it mean and where do you sit and things? I think it's also an opportunity to ask some questions or give us some, sometimes your opinions about things now to open it out. And can I just reiterate that it's all right to ask really what you might think of as silly questions. And if we can give each other permission that we will not... Um, you cannot offend me. If we can say that, there is no way you can offend me. We who have shared a meal here cannot offend each other. That it's all right to say something that you go, oh, I don't know if this is offensive or not. I need to say it. And then we can go through a process, and that would be really great for it. Um, just to, to say, too, um, oh, I forgot. I didn't meet you properly, but hello. Uh, our photographer. What's your name, photographer? Gregory. 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 Gregory Photographer is his name, Mr. Photographer. Um, Gregory's going to be taking some shots of, of this. Um, just, are you happy to be photographed? Is, you know, yeah. is that all right Except for everyone? when our mouths are full. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's hard, Ponch. Your mouth is always full. I've seen, I've, I've, I've seen Ponch at where there's free food. It's, um, it's a good look. It's circus background, indeed. <laughs> no, I remember... Oh, can I tell this quick story, Ponch? Uh, uh, no, it's a wonderful story. At, um, at uh, a friend's funeral, and uh, Ponch is there, and you know, there's, there are all these beautiful flowers, and we're all too shy to say, oh, what's going to happen to those flowers? And Ponch says, here, take these flowers home. And, and you know, the sense of saying, you know, that just... Why just let them be thrown out or burnt or buried take them home and fill your house with them and the memories and stuff. And that wonderful sense that, you know, Ponch is not shy to go, let's not, you know, let's not, let's not waste it. Let's kind of keep it going. Um, so if you're all right, if everyone's all right with getting a few photos taken, uh, that would be amazing just to keep a permanent record. Um, I guess I wanted to uh, have a little chat to Maria and Ian as well at some point and just say, like, what's, what's your position on the recognise... Uh, campaign. What what do you think? Oh, you don't. Oh, you don't have to if you don't want to. The cheese was <laughs> she got got shamed out by the cheese. But that sense of saying, you know, where where are you? Taking Deborah's point. What's your position on it? What do you know about it? And could you talk about it to anyone? both of what you guys have raised and um, I'm always quite sceptical that everything that's intended positively for Aboriginal people the fine print becomes very disadvantaged and so in that kind of yes it's a great the way that it's been plugged that it's a great thing but what is the fine print really for the people that are living with the repercussions of what these decisions are um, and so yeah so I in the kind of general sense of, you know, where we say we are moving forward, but then Adam Good steps out of the box that people have already placed him in, and so he becomes a threat. Yeah. And so then that then mm -hmm. um, goes, oh, well, you're not actually being the Aboriginal I need you to be. Mm -hmm. And so you've actually, you know, going against what I have of you in my head, so now I'm actually threatened. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but my reaction is not racist, I'm allowed to have that because you've actually crossed the line for me and maybe broken that invisible wall that's there. And 
Um, so I kind of do become sceptical in that kind of thing of going, well, to say that we're not a racist country or that we're actually trying to learn about our, our mobs or that, you know, other original owners, and then something as small as a, an invisible boomerang creates this whole other thing, you know? And, you know, the MCG, or also where it was at Etihad Stadium, possibly fills 60,000 people, you know, and then there's millions watching telly as well. Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of just going, okay, well, I don't really know. I want, I really want to know the exact details of what this, what it means mm -hmm. for, you know, because um, ultimately it's us, it's not the rest that it will affect. And it's, I think it's harder to change a consciousness and an education that's kind of been set in stone, um, while at the same time being very, very, um, yeah, just being very, very kind of, not shy even, but just of going, yeah, that's the truth, and I don't want to say it too now because somebody might actually hear me, and then what happens? And, and Eddie, uh, Ernie Dingo best said it, that I said in that whole Close the Gap stuff, that, you know, Australia for years will spend millions of dollars on educating Aboriginal people how to speak English, but there's not one cent spent on, spe on teaching white people how to speak Indigenous languages or to learn about Aboriginal people. And so if that was a, just that fact, it was going, okay, I'm going to educate you about Aboriginal Australia, and we're not going to actually put the pressure on everyone to actually learn English, but you're going to learn. You're going to learn Yungo language, you know, you're going to go and learn Pindyara, you're going to do all that. Then what happens? Mm. How does that change it? You know, and language then comes back to land, comes back to place, comes back to all those, those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know. It yeah. does come back to so many things. No, I've just take, uh, agreed to be an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. And uh, I had to really come to terms with it because, well, we know how important literacy is. But again, it's skipping over some fundamental truths of how important the experiential learning and the deep kind of listening that you have to adopt to understand Indigenous practices, all of those Indigenous methodologies writing and reading is pretty new. <laughs> and we don't know if that will continue. It certainly won't continue in the way that it has even since I was at school and other, other people here who might be around the same age as me. So it's evolving and changing all the time. I asked those children at that school, did they think reading and writing would continue? And they didn't think it would. So that's interesting. But I took on this role and I said to the organisers right from the very beginning, I'm going to be defending oral traditions in this and saying that literacy is a tool and we want kids to have that and not be denied that. And we'll be able to read that fine print. And when it comes, I'm concerned that it's going to be disappointing. It's been a long time in the coming. We, um, I have... Uh, the privilege of working with some young kids in a choir and um, a couple of years ago I asked them the question how recognised they were within their community. Did their schools celebrate Aboriginal celebration days like NAIDOC week or Reconciliation week, Sorry Day, so forth. And this was a group of kids up in Shepparton 
and almost without exception, they said, we're not recognised and our school doesn't fly the flag and they don't celebrate Reconciliation Week. And I said to them, how does that make you feel? And, you know, there were a range of emotions there. and It was really sad. I said, well, what should we do? They said, let's write a song about it. So they came up with this song called Do You Know Me? And the kids were, I don't know, the youngest was eight and the, the oldest was only 14. And they came up with this lyric that basically says, as Aboriginal children, we go off to school and we have to learn everything about the cultures that have come here in the last 230 years, but what do you know about us? You know, I know you, but do you know me? And when you hear the word Aboriginal, tell me, what do you see? And the next line is the one that's the clincher for me. A young girl, just 14 years of age, has um, not grown up with her Aboriginal father, has a non-Aboriginal mother and a non-Aboriginal stepfather, but she's finding her way back to her identity. She came up with this line, so tell me what do you see? Do you see you or do you see me? And I just thought, that's it. I never have to write another word about this because it says it all. Uh, the devaluing of our cultures and our methodologies, of our pedagogy, of our sciences, this is a thing that all Australians are missing out on. And Australians are angry and they don't even know why. And the kind of hatred, it's the hatred that we saw during the Adam Goods thing that needs further investigation and, and talking about, I think. I was surprised that there seemed to be no leadership, no one in a leadership role who was prepared to call it out. No. No. I, was, I was amazed, actually, that, that, well, look, the AFL is still reeling from the whole kind of Essendon situation. They feel like they've been, uh, their, their, their authority is undermined. But there seemed to be, like, no political leader was prepared to go, actually, that's really unacceptable. There, there's a sense that we're... We, we don't know how to lead. Anymore. I think that AFL is the last place we should look for leadership. When, <laughs> when two young men can sit in a news conference this week and say, well, you know, yes, we, we okay, we did take these, um, you know, these performance enhancing drugs, but it was only because we were taking illicit drugs. Like, we didn't know. And it was like, oh my God, you're defending your position by saying, well, we were just doing the illicit drug thing. And we didn't know these other ones were in there. I thought, uh, God. I'm going to... Um, Ian, do you wanna, what's your position? Priceless. In terms of what you're thinking in terms of... Um, I feel like I don't really know enough about it. And, um, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago I went to the football for the second time in my life. And um, all around the, the stadium was advertising for Recognise. And it's very bland and generic advertising. It's just, it could be for, like, recognised could be anything. It looks like a new nightclub or something. Um, <laughs> and so I kind of wonder, like, where is all this money coming from and who is leading this campaign? And um, I just feel like I don't know anything about that. Well, it's interesting that Recognised has been around for five years. It's been five years so far, anyway. Um, and how it's all been going about. There's been an expert panel that have been looking at the, the constitution and what needs to change, um, and, but there's been very little kind of uh, community consultation, and they're going into that campaign now. And it's interesting that 
you know, we're at the moment, at this point in time, we could be facing two referenda in uh, 2017. Uh, uh, one which, you know, the Constitution absolutely gives power to the Parliament to, to legislate on marriage, you know, that, that it has been changed in the past when John Howard put in, you know, a marriage has been a man and a woman. That was a change, a legislative change that the Commonwealth could make. Uh, and they could change that to be anything they wanted to, if they wanted to do it, but they are too scared to do it. And the, ex the other one is the, the recognised campaign, the, the constitutional change, and potentially a preamble. And both of which, you go, should, should we see more debate in our parliament over both? Like this recent kind of quashing of the marriage equality um, bill that, that went up, just you know, put it off into committee, we don't have to look at it kind of thing that would we benefit as a nation by watching people argue back and forward why? You know, would we benefit by seeing, in terms of recognise, why it needs to be happening and why isn't happening in the halls of power? Why isn't happening by our elected representatives, if that's the case? We're seeing more and more this thing of, well, it's too hard for us to deal with, you deal with it out there, instead of actually saying we represent the people. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Does anyone else around the table, have you had any research or experience or, or knowledge of the recognised campaign and, and, and talk a little bit about your experience of it? Well, that might be saying something itself. I mean, yeah, as a subset of kind of educated, thoughtful mm -hmm. people, mm -hmm. uh, we don't know much about it at all. And, and I guess it's that sense of even our constitution, we don't, we don't hold our constitution in such high regard as, say, the Americans do. You know, God, do they know their constitution <laughs> bloody. But even their amendments, are, they love their amendments more than they love their constitution in some respects. But that notion of this foundation document, which everyone goes back to, we, we, we really don't talk about very much it's, as well. It's not a living document. I mean, I, I, I doubt that probably anyone around the table can... Um, recite various clauses of the Constitution, I know I can't. So the idea of changing it is in some senses a, a quite a remote idea. Uh, and uh, and it is symbolic, but you know I can say that because it, it's probably um, not going to affect me as much as it's going to affect others. But I also feel incredibly suspicious that the Liberal Party seem to be backing it. Yeah. That makes me feel Yes. yes. Remembering that the Prime Minister was the Minister for Women and Minister for Indigenous <laughs> Peoples at one point there I for a second. I just feel like there's nothing in it for me. But but. The branding of it too, like on social media, it's really easy to go, oh, you recognise Aboriginal people, yeah, you know, and there it is. It's it's Mm -hmm. And also, what, the, the woman whose name I didn't catch as soon as I knew, Marie, but Marie. you said about it being an exchange, there's no sort of sense of that. Well, I, I haven't got any from the campaign. Mm -hmm. well, I, mean, I remember um, at one point, uh, the, the women's movement of the, let's call it the 60s and 70s, that notion that for women to gain equality, then it meant that men had to cede power. <coughs> had to give over power to make sure that there was equality. We haven't had that debate in, in terms of uh, recognising Indigenous Australians, that non-Indigenous Australia will have to, at some point, hand over responsibility or power 
and even with the native title legislation, it, it, you know, in in uh, in 1993 when the native title legislation went through, this was as, as much to do with Marbo as it was to do then later on with Wick. That notion that there was the first formal legal recognition of Indigenous people that the Parliament had made in terms of making laws and acknowledging that Terry Nullis was a lie and all that kind of stuff. Um, that there was no sense then that that what, what that meant was that the in terms of the title, Indigenous people could be around the negotiating table when it came to uh, land use agreements, you know, especially Crown land, so that Indigenous people could make a decision and veto if they wanted the the mining or the the building of a dam or whatever for cultural reasons. And we've seen since then a stripping back of the power of that. So that now in in WA, they've stripped that right back so that Aboriginal people have the right to receive the money from royalties and things, but not the right to uh, stop that development from occurring. So this interesting thing that... So the, the, the only way you can benefit from your native title is financially from its um, exploitation, not from its saving. So it's it's fascinating. We still aren't ready to let Indigenous people be the decision makers around that table. Fascinating stuff. I was saying to Wesley um, that uh, that that group of Year Nine students who I um, said you know two thirds of you will have Indigenous heritage. I, I want to have another. Con I want to have a long conversation with that group when they've had time to think about that and say, how did it make you feel? Mm. Uh, and if there's a level of discomfort there or whatever else, why? Can, can you articulate that? Uh, similarly, in this, um, this discussion of racism a couple of weeks ago, I wanted whatever his name is on that football show. Is it Sam Newman or whatever his name is? Whoever. I, I wanted those people that were just, you know vomiting vitriol across the airwaves to say, all right, define racism. What is it? What is it? What does it look like? What does it taste like? What is it? Uh, and if anything, those three weeks, those horrible three weeks, just brought to a head what, what we deal with probably every day still, if we're honest. You know, uh, I, I don't know about you, Wesley. I don't know, Marie. I won't... Um, I won't talk for you, but I know still that on a daily basis I'm, I deal with um, really gut-wrenching racism treatment for myself, you know, not getting served in, in stores. Today, for instance, I took one of our most senior elders uh, of the Bunwarang Nation, Auntie Carolyn, to lunch in <coughs> a pub. Uh, and uh, the woman there just did not want to... To, to have us there. And, and a, a group of other people got up and left when we came and sat down. Yeah. Well, can I challenge you on this one? Middle Park Pub. How, how do you know? I we mean, stayed. Anna Carolyn was, can I just say, she was a legend. Here was I getting so churned up inside about it. And I really engaged with a woman who was being horrible. She wouldn't answer our question of, of look, where, sh where can we get a quick meal or whatever. She said, well, you know, she was being just really unhelpful. So I just engaged and engaged and engaged with her until she had to speak to me. But Annie Carolyn, she just let it sort of drift off the shoulders and I thought, oh, I'm going to learn from that. 
But in the meantime, I was so incensed for her. And I actually went up to the woman as I was paying the bill. We had to pay before we ate. Um, I, I actually said to her, do you know that this is one of the most senior elders of the Kulin Nation sitting here? She's a VIP. And, you know, this woman was really shocked that I was telling her, but I told her. So uh, on a daily basis, you, you step outside your door and you can be confronted with things. I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one. Sorry. I was just going to ask Deborah, why did uh, Artie... Caroline. Caroline, why did she just shrug it off her shoulders? Why does she have that response? Did you... Are you interested to know? Well, it's her land. And she has absolutely no doubt about that. That is Bunwarang land and she knows it. Uh, this is not my country. My, my, my grandmother's country would be Yorta Yorta country. Um, my grandfather is Yuan. Uh, I think her years as an elder statesman uh, and maybe because she knew she had a younger, angrier person there that was going to take it off probably. But I would say because she is the elder statesman and in that situation... And look, in most situations, I don't say anything either. God, I could spend my whole time responding to racist losers like that. But you can't spend your life like that. But sometimes you do have to stand up. I mean, she was being really, really rude. I want to raise, raise this because, you know, we were saying defining racism. What does racism look like? And who gets to define it is very interesting too. That the conversation around Adam Goods was saying that, you know... No, this is just the uh, the the crowd right. booing a player like anyone boos a player. Uh, I, I was at the the um, uh, Hawthorne Geelong game on Friday night, Saturday night. Saturday night. Uh, and, and it, it's, it's, it's wonderful game, wonderful game. Uh, but that sense of saying, and then I heard this booing. And I'm going, what is going on? Why are you doing this? And that sense of going, you know, when is it racist and when isn't it? When is it just bad manners or bad service and when is it racist? Well, yeah, well, the booing or in this case the service at the pub. Like, who gets to define that and when? So this woman might be going, she may have no way of articulating racism. She just goes, oh, who are those people? They're just going to make my life hell. They're going to, you know, whatever. She's making some kind of prejudiced judgment on things. Yeah, but you could ask the same question then. Why? Yes. So that's what Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Who, who gets to define it? Yeah. Well, I reckon there would be some people who would be booing because that's what you do at the footy. And there would be other well, people who are going, this is it, let's do this, you, you know, you black sea. Have you seen the commentary? If you've seen the commentary in social media of what people think, that's not just coming from he feigns, you know an injury or whatever, he feigns whatever he feigns in AFL. That's horrible, disgusting, Ku Klux Klan kind of racism, 101. And so it's there. So there are, unfortunately, again, uh, it's not a nuanced approach. And so everybody... It's not fair for non-Indigenous people to get lumped under that blanket either. And so people who are booing because he's scoring a goal and you don't want him to... I lumped in with the people going, you, why didn't, why didn't we finish you off? What, you know, uh, what was I reading today? A text that went to Nova Paris. Do 
anybody else oh, see yeah, that? Oh, yeah, that was shocking. All right. The text that went to Nova Paris, uh, which basically said, you know, you're lucky that the English didn't have the guts to, to, to finish you off. If the Spanish had come here first or if the French had been here, that would have been it. And, and it went on and it was really horrible. That's everywhere. That opinion is actually everywhere. And is, it's it, in that crowd as well. It's not every single person that booed, but, but it's is some it good, of them. is it good to have these moments where it becomes public? I mean, we're talking about the recognised campaign. We don't have enough discussion about it. Adam Goods and that particular moment has meant that, well, everyone around this table has heard about it and has got an opinion about it. Is there, is there good when these things come out? I don't know. Did anybody else just hold their breath for a week and think, do not let this man actually harm himself? Yes. Do not let this become... Yeah. Let's be honest. I did. I sat there for a week thinking, is he okay? Because I don't know him personally. Be because a young... A many, many young men yeah. take their own lives yeah. in similar situations. So I think it's necessary that we have the conversation, but, boy, I worried in that week. I thought, where is he and what is he doing? If an, if an Australian of the Year could potentially take his own life over this kind of... Like, we're sitting out here as an audience almost to it when it's happening right in your face, right at that time, when the injustice of it... And that, Oh, yeah, that's the other point that I wanted to make about the difference between equality and justice. There was a great little cartoon that went around on Facebook a few months ago, and it's probably still there at the moment where it displayed the difference in a really simple sense between equality and justice, and they're not the same thing. And so I think what we're aiming towards is justice. Um, the way that it's demonstrated is there are, there are three people trying to watch a sporting match over a fence, and um, the tallest one can see, and the next one down can't really see, and the shortest one can't see at all. So equality is, well, let's treat them equally. We'll all give them something to stand on that's the same height. So they do that. The tallest people now, the person has an even better view. And the person in the middle, yes, they can see over the fence, but the little person can't, still can't see over the fence. That's equality. Justice is where you make it that they're all at the same height mm -hmm. and can see over the fence. And that requires different size boxes. Okay? So I'm not actually... Um, <clears throat> asking as an Aboriginal woman, as a lesbian, I'm asking for marriage equality. Uh, I think that's that's more straightforward. But as an Aboriginal woman, I'm asking for justice, and that'll cost more, but it won't ever cost as much as we've paid already. So you know, it's cheap at twice the price. I know people were furiously writing at times too. Um, Anything you wanted to add in or, or ask a question or, or say at this point? No, still listening. <coughs> Please. Football. I don't really follow the football. I actually don't follow the Where football. do you live? I grew up in Adelaide. I'm circling your name. That explains it. Upon moving to Melbourne and um, working a bit more... Um, with the Black Arm Band and Indigenous cultures. So really got to see that the AFL were investing in this area. And I was really impressed. 
Because I thought that the AFL was the, you know, homogenous, you know, horrible, kind of frightening, mass mentality, which kind of scared me a little bit, um, place. But just it just seems to be this real disconnect then. If they're investing all this, all these resources in engaging um, remote communities and the kids out there in football and for all of the good, you know, community um, good that it does. How have they got this crowd of people who are completely disrespecting the professional league and not saying anything when it happens? Well, they, the values of the organisation aren't, aren't reflected, reflected in the in the grassroots. Yeah. I don't know. Mairead might want to have an opinion about that one. <laughs> um, I think things have changed because, like, the week that the sorry, I run a community classroom at the North Melbourne Football Club. So, in that week, I was able to have about three or four different conversations with a group from. I think that one was from Dandenong, one was from Eltham, and then one was from the country. And where there were more kind of multicultural, I guess, mix of kids, they were better able to see that no, that wasn't on. And then there was one group from Gippsland that said that it was fine that he said he was mate. But then when the teacher went to unpack, no, but she said he was mate, sorry. But when the teacher went to unpack it, they also said that there were lots of Aboriginal kids in their school and that they all had a bad time every day and they thought that inequality in their school was about, you know, out of, out of zero to ten, they thought they weren't. Oh. So they thought life for Aboriginal kids, their peers in their classroom, and, and the other schools didn't have Aboriginal population. So it was a really interesting week. But now this has happened um, with the booing and so forth. I haven't even gone there at all. With any group, it's just—it's too hard. What, what's hard about it? Um, well, they—I haven't had as many visit, and I haven't had as diverse a group. But I think it's that thing around with whether you can boo or not, and all the argy bargy about oh, but we boo in American movies of football, and the change of conversation where there's just this kind of levelling things that cut out any more discussion. So, and because Alan, because Gil McLaughlin didn't say anything. Mm. So when it happened, when the first incident happened with the pointing, Andrew Dimitri came out and said it wasn't okay. Gil McLaughlin didn't say anything, and I think that had a big impact this time. But then as for the grassroots and your other things around that, um, it's a bit conflicted, like some of the material that goes out to, to grassroots, you know, little kids playing footy and that is really white looking yeah. and dis very disappointingly so, but then you look at the kids and they're not, so it's a real mixture of things that are happening and it's marketing is a big problem, which I think gets down to then when you see the, the R on the recognise that <laughs> it all looks branded and packaged up and good and easy to vote for, but it's not got... Yeah. depth to it. So I just see that things have become simplified through marketing. Can I be a little bit cynical here? Just a little bit. Yeah. That notion too that I think that the AFL um, 
have a vested interest in being in Aboriginal communities because they're talent spotting. That's what I think it's yeah. about the bottom line. Yeah, where's the next? Where's the next? Where the money is. Where's the talent yeah. going to come from? Talent, business. It's not about equality or justice no. or bringing in uh, Indigenous children into football. That's a byproduct, but I don't think that was the initial. Um, I feel like you could, you could level that at any organisation. Yes, I, I don't think. Yes. I think there are very quick more, to be dismissive of sport. Often, I think in these situations, <laughs> and you get back to your point there about well, right. is. Is it a ref- why, why isn't the audience being, you know, the people in the crowd a reflection of what the AFL is doing? I mean, what audience is the audience of the Australian Ballet a reflection of the values of the Australian Ballet holds? I don't know, maybe not. So I think it's, it's, le- it's more of a snapshot of society as opposed to a snapshot of that audience of a reflection of, you know, that overarching body that delivers whatever that entertainment is on a Saturday <coughs> afternoon or night. Um, it, it's always struck me that when there's an assault, what I see is an assault between two players. I don't understand why that is acceptable. acceptable. Yes. It just—it seems so bizarre to me that two people can punch each other in full public view, and that that to be not a criminal offence. I don't—I really don't understand why why we have decided as a community or as a culture that it's okay for that to happen. But you remember when the footy show was bring back the biffo? <laughs> <laughs> they had the campaign to bring back the biffo. That was an NRL thing. Yeah, NRL. But beyond, beyond yeah, the yeah, art. Yeah, it's yeah, completely endorsed. But mostly they get reported. Reported, yeah, but it's a, I suppose that's what I'm saying. It's like, oh, so in this sacred ground, there's a whole bunch of activity that is apparently completely separate to any other public arena. Yeah. And I... I I think that feels, you know, and as Australians, we're so connected. We feel, it seems to me that there's a mystique around the sport, um, yeah. you know, a blindness around actually what Absolutely. we're supporting Down in that way. What, what I, I mean, I find many things about this disturbing, but the, what, one of the things is that if this is a group of um, artists and theatre makers and musicians and singers and people who are looking at ideas and looking at the education of their community on an ongoing basis and we don't really understand what this recognised campaign is about. Well, something seriously is quite wrong and it goes beyond whether um, Adam Goods has been assaulted on so many levels uh, and not just him individually but as, as a representation for a community. But what concerns me then is how does, what is the paradigm under which the, this is going to be uh, formally addressed outside of the AFL, footballers, whatever it is? That, for me, is a much more important question uh, as, part of, uh, as a white person within this community feeling deeply ashamed for all of these uh, incidents. I, I, I just find it overwhelmingly disgusting. So what, what then begs the question is, what, what can work beyond some stupid campaign that, um, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, says it says looks like a nightclub, which <laughs> bears an even more horrific possibility, given what's been going on in those situations. So I'm curious to know from the Indigenous members here tonight what they see as something that could be really profitable for all of us. Not just our Indigenous members, but for those of us who genuinely wish that it be so much more inclusive and better. I think the through line so far, if I, if I was to just uh, distill it a little bit, is actually about the depth of the discussion. Yeah. That, that even, I think, the recognised campaign, it's kind of one of those things you go, oh, let's just slip it in, we'll get it through, because it needs to happen. 
but let's not discuss it so we, we, we don't get the kind of deeper deeper. But clearly, it's pointless. Well, well, but maybe well, look, let, let's flip this on on ourselves then. What do we do as artists? Yeah. Many of us are artists. Yeah. How do we tackle the big issues? Have we abrogated our responsibility to tell stories, to investigate issues? I mean, I, I don't want to, to pick on the MTC in particular, but that that notion of how please or, do or even 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 Malthouse in that way. Let's go. Say, are we so fixated on what our art is and our aesthetic? that we've forgotten that there's content involved in how we tell stories and what yeah. stories we tell. Have we abrogated that responsibility as artists because we have stepped back from some kind of political statement? But do you personally, as Indigenous people, have suggestions around the way in which you feel this could be better, uh, I can't think of the word, constructed within, the, within these sorts of paradigms? I mean. Because that, that would be very helpful to understand what you're thinking about that, mm. for me. Ignorance <clears throat> of the issues is, that's the problem. Ignorance has bred all of this fear. Absolutely. You know, when I was talking a few minutes ago about the woman who was rude to us in the restaurant, how many people here just wanted it to be, oh, well, maybe she was having a bad day. Yeah. Maybe it's not just you. How many of you... Wanted to that, and yeah, and I'm you know I'm 50 years old, so I know what racism looks like. But we don't want it to be that. We don't want it to be that, and it is hard. It's like it was just too hard to have that conversation. It is not that you didn't want to. You're somebody who would want to, probably be equipped to, and it was too hard because of the level of ignorance. You're not on the same page as everybody else. You're not even in the same book. In fact, you're not even in the library together. <laughs> you, Wes, this is, it comes back to what you said initially, Wesley, which I hadn't ever articulated for myself, but I think you're absolutely right. It's going too fast. We're not equipped with the information to win this over or even to have the right conversation. For me, it's not about constitutional recognition. Um, I think that we need to be a republic, so the constitution is, you know, that has to change anyway. Eventual, eventually, we're a constitutional monarchy at the moment, and I don't see that the way of the future, and I can't believe we still are. Um, but so the constitution is relevant to a certain degree. I think it's about treaty. <clears throat> That's how I feel. Mm. But uh, practical ways of doing that. I think we've talked about education. I think, in fact, if I was to be, you know, glass half full on this, I think that younger Australians are a lot more, a lot better equipped to deal with this and talk about issues than older Australians are? Yeah, Is but we're being, we're being socially engineered. You know, the, the recent funding cuts to the Australia Council, that's social engineering. We are being driven into a less informed society, um, if that's, you know, possible. If we ever thought that things could go more backward than the Howard years, who could ever have believed that it could, but it is. That grab of that money is social engineering. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> just the stories that have come out recently in, in my neck of the woods in the world of opera, it, it's just remarkable. And I had somebody say to me the other day that, um, <clears throat> that Baroque music was the next step backwards in classical music. And he was saying that as a good thing. 
And I was thinking, people are jumping onto this bandwagon because George Brandis has given Leo Schofield $100,000 and his show won the day and all the prizes and whatever. And it's this chasing after the money that we're being forced to do all the time. This, you know, you're asking the question, Wesley, are we abrogating our responsibility? And I'm thinking, gosh, that would be a luxury to actually get to that point. <laughs> We're just being pitted against ourselves with less and less and less resources as artists and then talk about being an Indigenous artist in the middle of that if, if that's how you want to identify. And this is all social engineering in, in my mind. Is there a point where... I mean, I looked at the Howard years in particular, but the notion of fear and competition have been used as a tool to rule us no longer, you know, we used to talk about governing, you know, representative democracy is about governing a nation, but we are now being ruled as much as anything else. So that the cuts to education, the cuts to university education, cuts to the arts, uh, certain competitive structures that are being set up around public housing or even health provision, all these kind of competition models are del delivering a kind of fearful approach to all of our social uh, institutions. Instead of actually a collaborative one, necessarily, we now compete against each other. And even within the arts, I mean, I think the, at, at the moment I run a state theatre company that's protected from all these things. And amongst my peers of artistic directors, very, very few of us, you'd count them on one hand, have stepped up in to critique what this all is. And what's driving that, I think, this lack of critique, is a fear of retribution that, that these large organisations... There's the gossip going around, and I don't know if it's true or not, that, uh, that the, the minister uh, uh, rang the chair of the Sydney Theatre Company and told them not to say anything. Now, I don't know if that's true, I don't know, but there's a, at least a sense that, of believability that that's the case. And this culture of fear is, I think, what drives us to, to just hit the superficial kind of targets, not to go any deeper, not to critique, not to hold up the mirror, not to kind of investigate further and that we are safer when we are just, you know, lovely, fluffy artists. And I imagine many people around this room don't work in the lovely, fluffy art in the way I work in the lovely, fluffy art. <laughs> but that notion of how, you know, that as an ecology, how we work together, it's actually, we're just chopping ourselves down. And there's this sense of competition that now the small to medium sector you know, and individual artists are seen as competitors to these fucking huge monolithic companies that we run, as opposed to some form of collaboration or, or what role do these large companies have to protect and look after, the, you know, different elements of the ecology. So it's, it's fascinating to say. So what I'm coming back to is this sense that the fear and competition actually makes us more pliable as, a, as an electorate. If we... If we uh, John Howard did it so successfully, where he used the, um, the misuse of funds under ATSIC as a way, as a bit of a wedge to create different changes. They took over a billion dollars out of Indigenous Affairs back in, oh, well, early in his term, so uh, I think it was the next election after the 96, so let's call it 99, or somewhere there. And they ended up putting over a billion dollars back in, in the form of the intervention because they had to somehow get in there and all the services that were ripped out, all the, you know, the health 
and um, family services in, in re uh, regional communities, rural communities, all that money was ripped out and came back in as a, almost like a punitive measure in protection and things like that. So, you know, it, it made a whole group of people incredibly fearful and that way you can control them. So anyway, I, I wonder whether we, our ruling classes have a vested interest in us um, being fearful yeah. and competitive because we're easier to, to rule. But, Let, but fear, please, is, yeah. fear is the killer, right? So George Brandis gets on the phone and he says to the chair of the Sydney Theatre Company, don't say anything. Potentially, perhaps. Potent yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> don't say anything. So the chair of the Theatre Company goes, okay, well, I won't say anything. But what would happen if he did? Mm. You know, like, Deborah, your story of saying to the woman in the restaurant, hey, that's not cool, whether she was having a shit day or not, is really commendable because whether people are rude because of, of who you are mm. who you're with or whether they're rude because they're just having a bad day is, is not cool. So to kind of stand up and say, hey, your rudeness is not, is not acceptable is, is really admirable. And I think that when we're talking about campaigns, like the recognised campaign, I know very little about it. And I would like to consider myself as you know, somebody that likes to take a bit of an interest in news. But I think one campaign that has had a really great impact is... Um, if you see something, say so, uh, not that, no, not that one. Um, the, uh, that's but the, uh, the the one I can't even remember what it is. But the the one about if you see racism on public transport, mm. help 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 me out. If you see racism on public transport, say 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 something about it. So it's kind of like about empowering the individual. And I kind of when I see stuff like that, I go, oh yeah, cool. Okay, so I as as an individual, I don't I don't really feel like I've got, um, you know, a lot. Like lots of ground to stand on, but but maybe if I see something horrible happening on public transport, I can say to the person that's doing the that's committing yeah. this horrible thing, I can go, hey, I, I don't like that, and I and I have done that. I've said to somebody on public transport who's saying something horrible to the person sitting next to them, actually that that offends me. That doesn't just offend the person that you're talking to. That offends all of us around us. And so, I think that fear is the killer. And I think that if we all go, well, okay, so what can I do? Well, in an individual sort of situation, I can go, I can say something. I have the power, I can say something, you know, and whether it's, like, how minute, how quiet it is, like, if you're actually saying something, then you are hopefully affecting change on a very minute kind of level that hopefully one day kind of... And then we need a campaign happens. for that, that to me is pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is. just the fact that you yeah. campaign... No, but, I, do but I, I think it yeah. gives people, like, I think it draws, it, it, it bubbles to the surface and it makes people go, oh, okay, so this... But so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling something or, yeah. um, okay, so other people are feeling this as well. This is not just me. Because like, I, I can often travel around and go, oh, this is, is this just me? Do I just kind of see that the world is a bit shit? <laughs> or, but, but when I notice that oh, other people feel the same, like, yeah, okay, it's a bit sad that it takes a, 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 yeah. a, yeah. Campaign, a national campaign yes. for that. Yeah. But I think that, that at least it's something. Mm. Perhaps yeah. back to the education, because mm. that wouldn't need to be in place if children were educated from their parents in a just way. But I think it would be though because I think that we, I think that there's a lot of shutting down that kind of happens and I think that we aren't encouraged to speak up about lots of things. But are we having the <coughs> wrong discussion almost? Like if, if we're talking about what's accepted or what's considered the common thing that we're trying to articulate this country is kind of built on fear. We're touching on that, that 
the conversation that we're having is about reframing the constitution, but maybe it's about like painting, what's that phrase about, we can't change a tiger's stripes or whatever. Yes. But we can't change the stripes, that we're, we're flogging a dead horse and since when have we been talking about a republic? Like, the thing that I always think about is this republic debate just has kind of disappeared off the face of this continent. But you almost feel that we kind of should be starting again. And, and that's, that's you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That's, why, that's exactly why the government is, has swung behind this, because it distracts yeah. us from the other debate and at the same time reinforces a false document. It's giving weight to this document, saying, well, if we can get you into this document, then you'll be recognised because this document is so important. It's the wrong document, and you're absolutely right. And that is why Abbott's behind it. And it's taken me until I've eaten half a plate of cheese and for you to say that, <laughs> to realise why. But that's exactly right. Where is the Republic in all of this? The Constitution will be... Uh, obsolete. Because you said yourself, like, um, yeah, I've been looking at a lot of different Australian plays approaching similar topics, and um, I was reading Andrew Bavell's adaptation of Secret River, and that sense of, like, that, I guess, illuminating this debate of, like, fear inherent in our identity. Mm. And you then think about what we've been talking about a lot about the Adam Goods, and a lot of that is just fear. It's different articulations of fear. Mm. And Fear just seems to be this word that keeps pop popping up and almost feels like the Australian kind of motto. Um, that then if we were to actually articulate something that, you know, there's that generic idea that the opposite of fear is love. If we're trying to articulate this sense of reconciliation, which is a much more loving gesture, do we actually need to start again? Do we need to start from the, the root and the seed of what we stand for? And but even, I mean, the Republic is such a the whole notion of kind of nationhood or statehood in a in a world that we know is absolutely you know that there's it feels to me like there's never a more critical time to think of our planet as one planet. So even that, even though that feels a relief to go, oh great, we don't have to you know we could think about the public rather than the queen, for goodness sake. But for me, it also feels like you know in terms of we need to take more time. But have we got the time? Because actually, is what is maybe more urgent is to think about, you know, this finite planet that we have and, and no capacity at all currently to kind of think about other than what the United Nations, you know, I mean... But I, I, think, that, I think they're related issues, that the idea that we're acknowledging that the system as we have now may not be functioning uh, well for us in the way we might need it to, and so we need to change that system. Be it that a republic might be one solution, but it's yeah. actually a, a chance to redefine what the relationship is. I mean, look, I own houses. I own property. How I dare you? Yeah, how <laughs> dare I? How dare I be What does your bank class? own houses? <laughs> That's what mine does. Well, they own two of them. Yeah. But that, the notion of going how I, am, I, am, I have a vested interest in the status quo, in the structure, because yeah. I've bought into the structure. If you start to change the, the debate in the... I start to lose things and I go, oh, do I, but I've been building this up so I could hand it on to my niece and nephew or whoever. <laughs> you know. uh, can I go back to some kind of foundation narratives though? Because I think this country is based on foundation narratives that we are still playing out. 
the idea that we arrived here on boats and we overturned whoever we are, overturned the social structures of this country and denied what was here before, that we still have this foundation narrative. If you come by boat to this country, we fear you. We fear what that means, and it's a deep kind of deep unrest in us. Even though most illegal mi migrants come by plane, the boats are something that live live very large in our uh, collective imagination. Because when you come by boat to this country, you can overturn what's here. Then suddenly we will be overridden by you know people coming, and it will change our life. Even though the number that come by boat are incredibly small. But it's a huge issue. Uh, our foundation narrative about control, that uh, we were, most of us in this country, were penal colonies or controlled in that way. And so all the social structures and institutions are still based on forms of control, forms of, you know, not about empowering. Well, if you do give franchise to someone, it's as a reward for something that you've done. It's not something that you earn necessarily. It's something that you, uh, it's not something that you naturally have, but you get given it because you have been a convict for a number of times, or you get free land now because you've you've claimed it and you're the right person to claim it. We have all these different structures, and I, and I do worry that as a country we have bought into models that we've just aped from Europe rather than defining what new models could be. What would it be like if we take the strengths of Aboriginal culture? and say, right, what's it look like if we don't actually have houses that we live in 12 months of a year? Imagine if we go, actually, in, in summer we're like here, that. in winter we're here. In How many people go on holidays here? It already looks like that. We're all nomads. It looks like that. It does look like that, and, and <laughs> it, it already is You're that. You're showing your middle classness, love. <laughs> Do you know whether it's the caravan park at Ulladulla or you know, the Isle of Capri. We, we go away and we have holidays and we're not... I don't know. I, it doesn't have to be either or. It's yes, not either. Yeah. Mm. So I think it already is that, but we were told it wasn't that and we just accepted it. But sustainable lifestyles too. Imagine if we, in fact, said, you know, uh, my biggest issue is how do we shrink our economy, not grow it? How do we say, okay, what's it look like if I work three days a week uh, at the office and then another four days a week in my garden. What's that look like? And I'm feeding my family and my community through what we're doing together. What does that look like? It looks like a shrinking economy. We don't need supermarkets as much anymore. You know, sure, we might need bits and pieces of things. Uh, you know, uh, like how do we look at saying fossil fuels are not the future? So let's actually shrink our economy so we don't need fossil fuels anymore. What does that look like? No one's talking about this because, oh, what's the... There, there's a... Um, in 1942, if I get his name right, no, I can't remember it, uh, there was an economist who talked about creative destruction, the notion that uh, every, every innovation uh, supersedes the thing that went before it and it replaces it. And you know, Uber with the taxi industry is the clearest thing at the moment. You actually have to destroy the existing thing for the new thing to, to grow. How are we, in fact, destroying our need for fossil fuels in this case and looking at, and, and maybe the great economic structures that we have, how are we destroying those so we can have a different type of engagement with a, with a community or whatever? Uh, I, I did some work in Cuba in the early 90s, and that notion of 99% literacy, you know, everyone could go to university, 
you know, the grass was, you know, up to your, 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 your what's this thing called? Shoulder. You know, because, you know, things, things just kind of, and things were growing in different ways and, you know, everyone had to eat really fresh food because the, the blockade from the United States. But if, I couldn't find a happier group of people in some respects. They were just incredible. And everyone sang and danced and there was that almost uto utopic kind of view of what the world could be. Uh, why am I saying that? Because I think they were forced to redefine what their economy could be. And what is it like if we do that voluntarily? You know, how do we do that? Some of those models look like what you were talking about, Maybe it's also articulating the system you're in. So you, you can say, be informed to say, oh, I'm in this kind of system. Is this a choice or is this just uh, an assumption? And if we can actually use Indigenous cultural values to help redefine that debate and discussion, that could be really quite fascinating, I think. And Harold, were you, at the, you were at the Tipping Point <coughs> conference in Canberra. Yeah, yeah. And, and when eight artists were asked to speak about... Um, was it 30 years or 50 years? It was 30, 30 years. years. It's 30 years hence. What does your arts practice look like? I was one of the eight, and I think I might have been the only one of the eight. Oh, there were seven really interesting, fascinating accounts of what arts practice would be in 30 years, but mostly bleak. You know, oh. there were climate refugees, New Zealand was full, Australia was, you know, it was really bleak. And I, I was thinking, oh, my God, I haven't prepared this at all. And I, I just got up and I said, well, you know, I pretended already it was 30 years. And I said, 30 years ago I went to this Tipping Point conference and I realised that what we had to do was make sure that Australia embraced Aboriginal methodologies and ways of knowing so that we survived and we became the country that led the world back to sustainability. And I wasn't being frivolous. I actually truly believe that. How do you do it? It's going to take a revolution. It's going to take a revolution. And the artists will be at the barricade. That much I know. And that's why if, um, if that call was placed and it was taken, <laughs> you know, the head of the STC really needs to, to speak up, as we all do. But you say revolution. But in some respects, we, we as Australians, are so in, in some respects, many of us are incredibly apathetic about it all. We, we are naturally nudged into evolution. We kind of go, oh, just oh, a little change, little change, little change. But Anne Carrot's point about going, do we actually need to break it? Do we need to break the system? You know, do we need a massive collapse of the stock market? Do we need to suddenly, you know the end of Fight Club where all the kind of credit card companies go up and smoke and yeah. suddenly the world We need China new. to stop buying and then we yes. just get on with it. And that puts us in a responsive position though. Yes, I am maybe talking about that. 
Yes. Well, it's inevitable. We're just hoping that we'll benefit from it in our lifetimes, I guess. Well, can I, can I speak? Can I speak? I studied economics. Can I speak up what? in favour of capitalism? Um, the problem with capitalism in, in its full free market kind of way is that we don't believe in the free movement of labour. That the free movement of labour is meant to take the resources that... Somewhere that's resource-rich, those resources should flow naturally amongst everyone and we should all eventually be equal. But we don't believe in that. We believe in the free movement of capital for the benefit of a few and not the free movement of labour to take, the, take that money and take it on. So, you know, we, we want a bit of both ways. And so anyone who talks about capitalism being the be-all and end-all, you go, yeah, 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 I'm all for it, if you actually believe in it properly. They believe in ideas of greed, not capitalism, I think. Like capitalism should flow to good ideas, innovative ideas, where the consumer then has choice to... To make um, uh, to drive down the price and take out um, profit to very small margins, and then everyone benefits from that. Blah blah blah. That's what it's meant to do. But yes, yes. We are coming to the end of my time here. I can I can hear Qantas calling me now. Um, no, I won't miss my plane. Planes wait for people. It's fine. Um, but I, I should just say that this... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, but this... I, I guess we're not coming up with answers. There's no solutions. But part of the reason why I think you are motivated to come to this is, well, because you were told to by your staff people, whatever. Um, that, but it was something because you already had an interest and that maybe from this too, what we're realising is we don't know enough. And that's a very broad generalisation, but we don't know enough. And how do we... Want out more? No, no, no. Oh, you just... In, you want a question? Go for no, it. When, you, when you say we don't know enough, um, like I came, first, I came first to Australia, to Western Australia, and uh, for a Palestinian that have enough problems to felt as an Aboriginal as well in my own land, um, we had enough things to know, so all I knew about Australia and about my husband that was one year before I came is just like the shape of the land and the kangaroos, of course, and the koalas. This is what I knew about Australia. <laughs> and that's really a racism, enough racism about what I came. And when I first, um, I was in the southwest of Australia and um, all I saw is Australian, you know, white Australian. And then I went to Centrelink and I saw people, like different people, obviously Aboriginal people, and no one mentioned, like for seven, six months of me being there, no one mentioned them at, at all to me. Even if in Western Australia there's much more people, Aboriginal people, I saw more than in Melbourne. And then I asked my husband why they look different than all the Australian I saw, because like the only thing I felt good, like, ah, oh, they're like Palestinian, they speak loud, because we Palestinians speak, go last, they always fight, so like, <laughs> we just speak loud and love this, like, and I went, and I said to my husband, he said to me, they are, they are Aboriginal, and I didn't know English by then, and I didn't know really actually what Aboriginal, and I felt so guilty that I am here, honestly, like, I, I didn't know anything, and I, I'm, I told my husband, like, I'm not coming from an occupied country, facing enough occupation to another one, like, what? Why didn't you tell me anything? And like what well, he said, if I told you, you would never come. And like it's, it's a bit, it's like 
for me, before I'm talking about like Adam and all of these things, it's enough racism not to talk all of us all the time about that. Like, I feel like the reason I am here is just because I feel this responsibility. First, from my country, that when I say Palestine, mostly say Israel or uh, Pakistan for those in Western Australia that have never been no, no. Israel <laughs> or Pakistan. So, like, and for this and for here now, like, I feel I don't know about like, I would love to know maybe like shortly because of time as well how like if that if i'm allowed to like i feel like you know if i'm not fighting for palestine i have another case to fight for and when i talked about as an artist i want to like make installations and work artist work about australian palestinian and Aboriginal because i feel this connection mm -hmm. lots of people said i shouldn't and like uh you don't Aboriginal people don't really feel how you feel about Aboriginal people just because you're sharing the same like way of occupation and so on. I would love to know from you both or like I don't know how you like how you see how other people feel this connection between I don't know if it's connection but relation between you and people that have like occupied their identity and their um, existence and language and everything where was destroyed and still continuously like I would not say luckily in Australia, I know that there's lots of other problems that are facing Aboriginals in Australia, but it's still continuous there and like, how would you feel about if you see something that is related to your art that is not made by a Aboriginal person? Can I, can I just throw something in before I run away? Because this, I think you can continue this conversation without me, which would be fantastic. Um, that often what I think we do have to, in this, in this discussion, is what I call a paralysis of integrity that we sometimes stop ourselves because we are fearful of offending or not understanding. But in fact, by going into the process with a respectful and open mind, often that's when you do get to share things and you get to make a mistake and someone tells you it's a mistake and you go, oh, sorry about that. What, how can I do that better? And that often things can be done through that kind of negotiation too. That uh, to step back and wait for the perfect set of circumstances for you to do something I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think that's. I, I look. I think that's never going to happen for anything you do. To be honest, no. it's all trial and error, learning and stuff. But we feel so that this is such an important issue that we sometimes stop ourselves from engaging. So that's number one. Number two, I think that there's um, the the story of and forgive the the analogy, the chicken and the pig. Have you heard the story? The the chicken and the pig go for breakfast, and the chicken says to the pig, "Okay, what are we going what are we going to have for breakfast?" And the pig says, oh, you choose. And the chicken says, oh, we'll have bacon and eggs. And the pig says, that's fine, that's fine. Just realise that for you, it's a contribution. For me, it's a sacrifice. <laughs> and there's this kind of relationship, a relationship to what you're doing that you have to be aware of that, that no, matter, no matter that you are friends, no matter that you are there together, no matter that you are, in this case, eating the same meal, that there will always be a different relationship to that conversation, even though you have simpatico, even though you have understanding, and that part of this idea is about what you're sharing together. So for me, it's, it's, I don't think I could ever understand your situation fully. I could, you know, I could empathise or sympathise perhaps, not fully understand, and I could only ever understand what you tell me. So that through that discussion, that's when it comes about. So I think that's what motivates a, a lot of people. And, and maybe this is the thing too, where every non-Indigenous Australian needs to be um, adopted into an Aboriginal family. Definitely. 
um, and you need no to question. pay for your brother to live in a house mm. and pay other people's rent and kind yeah. of feed everyone all the time and all the things that we have to do. But there's a point where that understanding only comes from that person-to-person experience and there's no book you can read that will prepare you for it in mm. some respects. You have to be there. Um, on that note, if you can forgive me, I'm going to run away. But sure. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll stay a little longer. Um, but I'm just going to kind of slip out, but I'm going to ask Deborah to, to keep talking because yeah. you'll have your opinions as well. Well, let's, let's, um, let's thank Wesley, first of all, for... Oh. And just thank Art House and stuff for organising this and everyone else's contribution. That feels like it's wrapping up, but please keep conversation going. And, um, and just thank you too, because I think there's been some, uh, a great provocation for personal action and finding your own way forward and all that stuff as well. Thank you. Um, there must be people that are dying to say something that haven't haven't had um, haven't had the opportunity yet. Uh, I guess it was interesting for Wesley to end on that note about um, that sort of the, that silence and that inaction where people like bite their tongues and they want to say something but they feel like maybe they can't because it's a complex space. Mm. Uh, and I just feel like I want to say, Phew, two hours of that is a really intense thing. But it's a really great thing to have, and I can't wait for the time where I feel like I'm able to sit at a dinner table and, and kind of discuss contemporary Indigenous affairs and, and be able to voice an opinion without being terrified of being wrong. Um, and, and I just, right now, I'm just happy to own the feeling of, of, of trepidation uh, because I know more now than I knew two hours before, and next time I will feel less like that. Uh, and that's great. And I'm normally someone who's quite happy to speak, uh, but it's really nice to listen. Um, yeah, so thank you. Um, and for everyone who was brave enough to speak, because, you know, it needs people to speak. Um, and, yeah, and to, to question and, and to listen as well. So thanks. Aww, thank you. Uh, often asked, you know, how, how can I go about engaging with Indigenous culture and just to answer your uh, point, I did write down your name, sorry, Asil. Yeah. I guess you need to form a relationship with an Indigenous artist or community and um, there's a lot of listening involved and gaining that information and really just uh, the same way as if somebody came to Palestine and said, okay, I want to tell this story but you have to fill me in and form that relationship same way. There might be people that say, don't do it. But if you find an Aboriginal person that wants to collaborate with you, then that's up to them. You know, again, can't throw a blanket over the experience. And I can sorry for asking, but you mentioned, what do you mean when, sorry, my, <laughs> I'm still building this. What do you mean by throw the blanket on? Like what that means? To, to, um, like, to generalise to generalise. So to say that all Palestinians wear red jackets, all Aboriginal people are this or that. You, you can't make generalisations. And um, for Aboriginal people, throwing a blanket using that uh, expression has a, has a particular poignancy 
for us because um, in clothing, the blanket was the point at which um, our communities and our, our way of being self-sufficient, it was the turning point because the blankets came and they were not weatherproof. And so we, we, we got pneumonia, you know. Our, our, our hunting grounds were taken. We couldn't wear our, uh, our traditional clothing anymore, which was waterproof. We were given these blankets by mission managers and Christians and said, here, wear this for warmth. But it was totally inadequate. So a blanket is kind of... It kind of has a special meaning for Aboriginal people. But also it's just a general term. To throw a blanket over something is to to make a generalisation about everybody, uh, more or less. I say, um, uh, when people ask me, can you tell me how to engage with Aboriginal people? Maria, it must be the same for you. You still go places where you're the first Aboriginal person that you know, people have ever met where you go, which is interesting experience. Uh, I've, I've been telling people for ages, ever since NITV went free to air, just change your viewing habits of television for a week. For you, I'd tell you for a month because you're thinking people, but if I'm speaking to kids or, or people who are less likely to do it even for a day, I say just tune in and view the word, world through an Indigenous lens for a week. Don't watch your usual news broadcast. Watch NITV news broadcast. And just view through that lens for one week. And you'll develop a vocabulary and an understanding. If you think tonight's intense, that, that would be a really... And it's a non-threatening thing to do in your own lounge room with your remote control. Tune into a television broadcast that will give you a totally different perspective on the very same country that you live in. Uh, I think it's a wonderful resource. I think there's never actually been an easier time to engage with Aboriginal community and yet all the resources and all the time and all the effort that's being poured into that and are we seeing the change that we want? We're not, not quickly enough because the wrong questions are being asked and the wrong conversations are being had. Well, I think they're the wrong ones. And that's just my opinion. Some things I've said tonight are fact and some things have just been opinion. And our opinions will vary, you know. So you need to get to know as many Aboriginal people as you can, I guess. And the easiest way to do that is via television, I think. And then you'll find out about a whole world that exists there. It's like I have a 23-year-old daughter and so she does the things that 23-year-olds do and they're completely different from the things that I do and I never thought I'd be saying that. But she, she knows a Melbourne that I have no idea about. Everything, for starters, is upstairs. <laughs> None of it is street level. I know this. Uh, and so similarly... Uh, for Aboriginal people, there's a world of, of fantastic community engagement, of wonderful, loving relationships, of humour and of serious talk and of so many things that you never get to hear otherwise. And tuning in to that television station for a week or a month, 
It's like that moment when you grow up and you realise you should stop to listening to that talkback radio host that's just so ignorant you can't believe it. It's when you take control of that and you change the dial and you say, I'm going to listen to something else. For me, it's 80s classic music at the moment. I've just gone... <laughs> that was my happy time. I have to listen to this when in, I'm in the car. Um, are there other people who haven't had a chance to... I think most people have had a chance to say something. No, but I do have a question about something you were saying early, very early on in the evening, um, which is one of those kind of quite ignorant questions. But you were talking about every person in Australia being able to say, I'm from this group or I'm one of these people. And I think that I had always thought of that as to do with blood ties, whereas from, from you saying that, sounds more like it's to do with the place. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, for me to be able to say, make that statement, is that to do with the place that I'm from or is it to do with ties and relationships with different people within the family? Well, it has to be both. Again, it has to be a more nuanced approach than we are allowed to have in our current discourse in, in this country. We're not being encouraged. Um, not that we need encouragement. We're the artists, and so we should be shaping. We should be shaping the narrative. I th and I think we do. I think we, I think we are, and sometimes we feel very small and, and, and maybe powerless, but I don't think that we are. I think we're a long way off uh, Aboriginal Australia being comfortable with people who've only been here for maybe seven generations being able to do that. But only because... Only because the knowledge hasn't been embraced. Only because it's been overlooked. If from the very beginning... The kind of things that are in the diaries of the first explorers of the colonisers and the squatters, if you read the source material of the diaries, and there's a lot of it in that book that I recommended before, Dark Emu, they saw. They saw and they chose to ignore. They saw. There's this one moment, I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember which explorer it was. Might have been Hume. Anyway, I won't quote the name, but one of, the, one of the surveyors, actually, was recounting, walking through the countryside in the 1830s, and he could hear at... He could see the fields of, of, of yam daisies. He could see the agriculture that was going on. He could see the dwellings. You, you, you know that here in Victoria, on Lake Conda, the oldest dwellings, the oldest buildings on the planet are here in Victoria, five hours' drive from here, 7,000 years old, these houses are, stone dwellings. We're not meant to know this because we're meant to think that, you know, that Aboriginal people didn't own or possess or, or live on their land, that we were nomads that just roamed around aimlessly. So uh, you're not meant to know this, and yet there it is. 
Uh, any other country in the world would be going, woohoo, let's get the tourist trade in here and celebrate this. Stonehenge, pyramids, Mats Picchu, Lake Conda. Uh, so, sorry, I've, I've sort of talked myself out of what I'm saying to you there, but it's going to take some time to overcome the way this knowledge was discarded, intentionally discarded, and the way that we've been misinformed. And look, on just on a day-to-day -day basis, none of us like to feel like we don't know that we're going to, you know, be found out that we, we don't understand. It's an uncomfortable position to be in, yeah? as adults at any time in our lives. But if there is a way that we can enrich our knowledge, that non-Indigenous people can enrich their knowledge of Indigenous culture, maybe then we could get to that. In answer to the other part of your question, is it's definitely both. Yeah, there are blood ties, but it's about place. Being there was everything. You couldn't know something unless you were prepared to be there. And so our culture is not designed for that now. <laughs> Everything's electronic and, and there are books and you can say you've read a chapter and you know and you don't really know, you've just read a chapter and you've never actually been there. Aboriginal culture was all about being there. And until I personally was able to find my way back to my grandmother's country, back to Yoruru country, I didn't actually really know who I was or what my connection was, but I had to be there. And um, Maria, you, you would have a lot to say on this as well. Um, um, please. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is that, that um, you know, I'm Bunjalung, I'm from Final Coast, New South Wales. I know my country goes um, as far north as Bow Desert, it goes south down to Grafton, it goes east to Warren Bay and it goes west out to Tenerfield. And I know that that's where I come from. And wherever I go, I go to other countries that that's where I come from and that stays with me. And, um, and I, I suppose it's that thing too of acknowledging that as well, you know, like in that whole... Um, you know, in, in my mother's side, it's up in the mountains and our law comes from the stars. And, you know, there's a, um, a whole, you know, reading astrology, you know, and that, that everything comes from there. And, um, and then on my dad's side as well, there's the, the stories come from the dolphins. And so there's, there's place and there's that, that that's there. And, Wherever I go, I kind of carry that sense with me as well. So, yeah, I guess. I mean, we define ourselves by eternal principles. You know? They're large ideas to grasp. And that gives Aboriginal people a resilience and a freedom in a way that I don't think non-Indigenous people have, or particularly particularly Anglo-Saxon Australians. If I've known anything, it's that I... It, things are changing now and around this table, that's obvious. But in the early days, the people that were more accepting of me as an Aboriginal woman were not Anglo-Saxon. There were people who had come from other countries, from Palestine, from 
Europe in that wave after the Second World War. It wasn't the British. <laughs> and that goes back to guilt. And I think... Um, I hope I live to see the day beyond that. And it's not just that people stop caring or we're supposed to get over it, that people actually do really understand and that understanding brings a kind of liberation that will bring us together as a nation. I know that sounds a bit pie in the sky, but I can't hope for anything less than that. I can't possibly hope for anything less than that. So I do. And I see children write songs about it and that makes me more hopeful. I wanted to sort of, I don't know when we're supposed to wrap up, but I wanted to tell you about a book I, did, I, I came across um, recently. I was in Canada on a residency at the Banff Centre, so if you've ever been there, you know it's a really, really special place. And um, there just happened to be, while I was there composing, writing some music, a conference of all the opera, uh, all the opera companies of Canada I mean, you know, what a coincidence. I just happened to be there. So I went along to hear the keynote speech by a guy called Al Etmansky. And he gave me this book of his. It's called Impact. And uh, he gave the most wonderful keynote address about the arts being a social movement for change. And uh, this is called Impact, Six Patterns to Spread Your Social Innovation. And he talked to, he was talking not from an artistic background, he came from um, a disability background, uh, but he was speaking to this colloquium of opera companies. And he was talking about how opera companies could be a movement for social change. And uh, I think that we do that every single day when we inform and we inspire and we help people to dream beyond the very uh, the limitations that are being placed on us now. So I just would recommend this book to you as something very interesting and inspirational, Impact, by Al Etmansky, E-T-M-A-N-Ski. Uh, it was interesting because after he spoke, then there was a panel and there were four opera companies represented, four Canadian opera companies. And they each talked about how they had, well, I'm going to be really blunt here, they'd each jumped on the bandwagon of a cause and got extra funding for what they wanted to do. And the first one was, um, uh, well, I can't even remember the first one. He was so bland. He didn't really care. The second guy had jumped on the bandwagon of homelessness and... The third guy had jumped on a bandwagon of, refu of um, political refugees. But one of them, uh, a woman um, from Calgary, they had, they had adhered more closely to this idea of changing the world through art and making that a lasting change, whilst the others had just got some extra funding because it was the cause du jour. The one that really got up my nose was the political refugee one. Because what they did was they staged this opera by Beethoven called Fidelio. It was his only opera, and it's about political refugees. And they rounded up a whole bunch of refugees 
in um, Manitoba it was. They rounded up a whole lot of refugees and they included them in the final scene of the opera. They weren't there to sing. They weren't even really supernumeraries. They just basically walked onto the stage. He tells us this. And he says, oh, I've got a photo of them somewhere on stage. Oh, we can't really see them. They're behind the principal cast, but they are on stage, these refugees from the community, real people. He quickly clicks over that photo to show us the patrons who were doing a tour of a new building they've just built. But anyway, his point was that they had changed the lives of these refugees because they had come and they had been in this one opera. So that was really, that was really getting to me. And I'd promised myself I wasn't going to say anything. I was a guest at this and I thought, well, I won't say anything. Just listen, just listen. But then it got a whole lot worse when he explained that what they did on opening night was they had done some research and they'd taken the name of actual existing political refugees and a little bit of a story about them that they'd found online and stuck it onto each seat in the theatre as a fundraising um, exercise. And the patrons in the theatre could actually donate in the name of the political refugee they'd stuck on the seat. Why am I telling you this? Because, I, if anything, we need you to all be really vigilant around connection with uh, Indigenous artists and Indigenous art. I can tell you that on a weekly basis I'll get a phone call from somebody wanting me to sign off on their project so that they'll get you know, their Indigenous funding. It, it's, it took me a while to recognise it. It took me about half a year to recognise it was happening when I first became head of Willen Centre. It happens all the time still, and I'm now quite vigilant, but in your own dealings and in your own desire to engage, it's really important that that comes from a place that's real mm. and is the way that you would want to be treated and not fearful because Aboriginal people opened their arms initially and the arms are still open and that's cost us a lot in the interim, but you know, I've got that picture out in front of me that one day you'll say that you're from, you know, I was born here and that makes me part of this. I arrived at this point and that's when I began my journey of discovery and knowledge. And we would be such a strong nation to do that because we have the most culture to reach back into, more than anybody else. So. Um, yeah, I just encourage everybody to get on with that and, and embrace it as much as you can and uh, see Aboriginal culture for the asset that it is. Yeah, but good deal.